Uh, This morning's reading comes from Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light fell from heaven, flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he led them, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who come in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you that you have given us your word, and thank you for this wonderful story of Saul's conversion. I pray that as we think about these words, that we would hear your voice clearly, and that we would be changed. Amen. This week, Pope Benedict XVI is visiting Britain at the invitation of the Queen. I don't know if you'd noticed, but his visit has polarized opinion. Whilst in many places he has received an enthusiastic and warm welcome, his presence has also stimulated a response that is, frankly, rather nasty. 
the newspapers and airways have been full of hysterical anti-popery. This week has shown that it's not just fundamentalist Muslims that are driven to extreme behavior and language by their beliefs. One of our more famous parishioners, Richard Dawkins, has said, Mr. Ratzinger, as head of the world's second most evil religion, you are not welcome. Go home to your tin pot Mussolini concocted principality and don't come back. And it's not just the celebrities and public figures that speak in such a way. A BBC online forum set up for the purpose had, at my last count, 3,000 comments about the Pope's visit, the vast majority of which are sneering and ill-informed and even vicious. One in 10 of those comments have been removed by the forum's moderators for being objectionable, defamatory, or offensive. I must admit to being a little taken aback by the vehemence expressed and the savageness of the emotion I find rather frightening. But such sentiment is not new. The picture painted of Saul persecuting the church is rich in brutish imagery. Saul, the privileged, talented young Pharisee, was in his zeal for his religion persecuting the church. Aided by what was effectively an extradition order, he was like a bloodhound obsessively tracking down every last Christian in order to arrest them having given his approval to the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He was like a war horse that had smelled the battle and tasted blood. Verse 1 speaks of Saul breathing out murderous threats, panting or snorting like a wild animal, intent on pursuit. He had a relentless animal energy that had taken him 150 miles from Jerusalem. Chapter 8 speaks of him destroying the church. The same word in Psalm 80 is translated as ravage describing a wild boar devastating a vineyard. Verse 21, which we didn't read, speaks of Saul having caused havoc in Jerusalem, a word, again, that can be rendered mauled. Saul was driven by a mind poisoned with prejudice and a heart filled with hatred. Yet in the space of one chapter, the church's fiercest, fiercest enemy becomes its most gifted an energetic champion. It would be hard to overestimate the significance of Saul's conversion, not only for the subsequent narrative of Acts, but for Christianity and world history. The event is so astonishing that Luke tells it three times in his book, once in his own words and twice in Paul's. Saul had set his life on a course directly to oppose the disciples of Jesus. But the one who was out to arrest the followers of the way, was himself arrested, stopped in his tracks as he was headed full tilt into Damascus. The runaway bull, seemingly unstoppable, was halted. In a matter of seconds, Saul's life was completely turned around. One moment he was a man filled with pride and hate, fixated on Damascus and his goal of liquidizing Jesus' followers. The next, he is thrown to the ground, humbled, being addressed by the Lord of heaven. This sermon is part of a series entitled Models of Evangelism and looks at episodes in Acts and how people come to faith in Jesus. In the first sermon of the series, we were reminded by John Adams that evangelism is in fact God's work, driven and empowered by God's Spirit. And this fact is particularly striking, I think, in Saul's conversion. Conversion is the sovereign and free act of God, through Jesus Christ. Saul didn't 
decide for Christ, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him. Decided for him and intervened in his life. How else do we explain that complete turnaround? So whilst Saul has to respond, clearly he has to respond in both Luke's narrative and Paul's subsequent letters, it's clear that God takes the initiative according to his own will and pleasure. And whilst this most famous of conversion stories is unique, unique in both its drama and its significance, it's of universal relevance. Very few of us will be able to speak of a Damascus Road experience, but the same principles apply to all who are converted to Christ. It's the story of how God turns around a man who is emphatically going in the wrong direction, someone who's headed the wrong way, and that is the story of each one of us. And the Lord delights to save the humanly hopeless, the impossible cases. No animal is too wild for God to tame. And so if God can save Saul, the chief of sinners, and use him for his glory, he can do it for anyone. None of us are beyond the long reach of God's sovereign grace. And that includes me, you, avowed atheists, Muslim extremists, anyone. The story of Saul to Paul is the story of every Christian, writ large. Each of us is headed the wrong way in life, and we need to be stopped in our, tract, stopped in our tracks by an encounter with Jesus and helped by the ministry of fellow Christians turned around to head the right way. We've been thinking about how Paul has been headed the wrong way, and in what remains of our time together, we're going to think about how Paul, Saul, rather, is stopped in his tracks and turned around to go the right way. We have four headings to describe this process, written of Saul, but applying to each of us. Firstly, blinded that he might see. Secondly, humbled that he might be raised up. Thirdly, called that he might be sent. And fourthly, healed that he might make others whole. blinded that he might see. Saul's conversion was only made possible by an encounter with the risen Christ, and this is what he had. Having seen so clearly, or thought that he had seen so clearly what he needed to do in his life, his world fell apart. He's rather like the businessman who spoke of his whole life climbing the ladder of success to one day realize that the ladder was up against the wrong wall. The light from heaven blinded Saul, and the voice, like an earthquake, shook to the ground his zealously held views. The imagery of sight and blindness is prominent in the account of Jesus' earthly ministry. And Jesus' many miracles of giving sight to the blind were some of the most vivid signs of his supernatural power. Blindness also metaphorically refers to an inability to recognize the truth and significance of Christ. Such spiritual blindness is the work of Satan, and only a miracle of God can reverse it. Paul himself, some years later, wrote this to the Corinthian church, which he had established. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out in darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. These words could have been written of Paul himself. He was blinded 
that he might see. Saul's life was set on a course opposing the core Christian beliefs that Jesus was raised from the dead and that Jesus was Lord, reigning in glory. But encountering Jesus brought a flash of light and healed his spiritual blindness. Those incorrectly placed jigsaw pieces were shaken up and reshuffled, and they settled in their right places. In this eureka moment, Saul was uncontrovertibly faced with, by the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah who lives and suffers with his church, and that in persecuting the church, Saul had been persecuting the Lord Jesus himself. Saul had been a bit like an aircraft directed at a skyscraper. But this proud, talented man who had been hurtling in the wrong direction is brought to an abrupt halt. Instead of racing into Damascus, he is instead led, led in by the hand like a child, dependent and humbled. His dearly held beliefs in ruins, the Pharisee is shattered, broken, helpless. The raging persecutor, reduced to a shambles. Humans are intrinsically set against God. Each of us is wired to oppose God and to head our own way rather than his. And whilst we have some control over the accelerator of our lives, it seems that we can't really operate the brakes. And as with a dual-control car for a learner drivers, when things are going badly wrong, someone else needs to step in. And this is what God does. The machine that's gone haywire needs unplugging. The crazed animal can only be prevented from harming itself and others by a tranquilizer dart. The errant aircraft must be brought safely to the ground. And it was not a subjective event, a mental breakdown or an epileptic fit, as some have suggested. What happened had objective reality. The men traveling with Saul heard the sound, and they saw the result of that miraculous encounter. Saul, humbled, was led by hand into the city blind, and for the next three days he ate and drank nothing. Now, we react against the idea of being humbled. The first sin was one of pride, and our default position is to want to assert ourselves and look after our own interests. Listen to the debates on assisted dying. What are the prime arguments employed in its favor? Autonomy and dignity. But sometimes our concept of dignity doesn't dovetail with God's concept of humanity. To be saved from himself, from the animal nature that was consuming him, Saul needed to be humbled. And to be saved from ourselves, sometimes we need to be humbled too. It's important to note that whilst Jesus humbled Saul, he didn't crush him. Jesus didn't crush Saul. He didn't violate his personality and demean him. Jesus doesn't overwhelm or compel. That's not how he deals with people. Jesus spoke to Saul, and he put to him a probing question that appealed both to his reason and to his conscience in order to persuade him and to convict him. Why do you persecute me? The Lord engaged Saul in conversation, and Saul replied with two counter-questions. Who are you, Lord, and what shall I do, Lord? Saul's responses were rational, conscientious, and free. And that's where each of us finds ourselves before a God who would rather woo than wallop. God gives us free will, and he always respects it. As John Stott puts it, 
Divine grace does not trample on human personality, rather the reverse, for it enables human beings to be truly human. It is sin which imprisons. It is grace which liberates. And so the careering car was taken off the road that it might go into the garage. The wild animal was sedated that it might be treated. And God, in his grace, having taken Saul apart, proceeds to put him back together. Having humbled him, he raises him up. Having stopped him in his tracks, Saul is instructed to go into the city to wait for the next part of God's unfolding plan, to turn Saul around and make him a follower of the way. It's striking that this chapter and those either side of it all feature visions from God, clear signs that what's happening is God's initiative. In chapters 8 and 10, either side, the visions are confirmed by the unfolding events, the joyful reception of the gospel by the Ethiopian eunuch, and by Cornelius and his household. And in this chapter, we have two independent but interlocking visions. When God works, he works at both ends of the line. The impressive Saul receives a vision, but so does someone else. And were it not for the conversion of Saul, we would never have heard of timid Ananias. Yet Ananias has a crucial role in God's salvation plan. God, it seems, is rather keen on the seemingly weak links in the chain. Just look through the Old Testament to see how fragile God's plan of salvation seems. Every one of a long chain of characters has close encounters with death and on multiple occasions almost run aground. Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac. Baby Moses narrowly escaping from being drowned amongst the bulrushes. And later on, almost being lynched on several occasions. The list goes on. But God keeps the show on the road. And here, God delights to weave into his plan. God, in his grace, employs the bit-part actor, Ananias, whose very name means God is gracious, an ordinary Christian with a crucial role in the remaking of Saul. Behind many well-known servants of God are lesser-known believers who have influenced them. On April the 21st, 1855, Edward Kimball led one of his Sunday school boys to faith in Christ. Little did he realize that Dwight Moody would one day be the world's leading evangelist. We must never underestimate the importance to God of seemingly insignificant people and things. Our task is to lead men and women, boys and girls, to Christ. God's task is then to use them for his glory. But poor Ananias, what a shock. What a shock he must have had when the voice which he had correctly identified as the Lord's told him to present himself to the man who Ananias knew was on his way to arrest him. Was God telling him to turn himself in? It seems that though Ananias knew it was Jesus speaking, he suspected that Jesus didn't quite have a handle on what was going on. Perhaps Jesus didn't appreciate the seriousness of the situation. It does, of course, sound ridiculous to put it like that, but Ananias, I guess, was confused. But Jesus clears up the confusion with a revelation of his plan for Saul. Saul was to be his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. However counterintuitive or scary it seems, we should never be afraid to obey God's will. 
And Paul, as the new man was to be known in his later writings, states clearly his conviction that God set him apart from birth to be his apostle. Paul had been uniquely prepared by God for this task. Saul, born a Jew, brought up a Pharisee, trained in the law, was a star of his generation. But Saul was also a Roman citizen, familiar with Roman law and Greek philosophy. He was God's choice servant to announce the message of the church. Paul was the ideal man to give this new message that there was no difference between Jew and Gentile in Christ and that the gospel was for everyone. But we've left Saul languishing in the house of Judas on Straight Street, blind, hungry, and thirsty. But having been emptied of himself, he's ready to be filled with God's Spirit and sent out. The remaking of Saul would not be complete without the faithful ministry of Ananias and his vital role in Saul's being healed that he might make others whole. Ananias was that ordinary follower of the way, obedient and brave, and he went to the house as directed. He addressed his new brother, a fraternal welcome that can hardly fail to move. The man who was his erstwhile persecutor and would have thrown him into prison is now his brother. So Saul is remade by the ministrations of his fellow Christian. God could do it all himself. But instead, God chooses the followers of Jesus to do his work. And we should similarly expect to be used in God's great work of making disciples. Ananias was the first to know God's call on Saul to be an apostle and a missionary. Ananias has the privilege of seeing Paul, Saul healed, filled with the Holy Spirit, and baptized. Saul's sight is restored, indicating that his spiritual blindness is cured. Saul's baptism, like Tabitha's, symbolizes his dying to his previous life and being born into a new life. And having taken some food, Saul is restored to strength, but now he has a strength that is harnessed for good rather than for evil. Saul's background, his training and his personality are focused and applied to the spread of the gospel. Saul is changed by God's grace from a man committed to violence and compulsion to a man committed to persuasion and modeling Christ. This was all part of God's plan, God's preordained process of sanctification. Even the suffering that Paul was to face was part of that plan, not as a sort of punishment for what he'd done, but because this would make him more like Jesus and make his testimony effective. As Paul himself went on to write towards the end of his life, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that persecution wasn't to be far away, as you can read in the next section of Acts. The most vehement inflictor of suffering on the church has become the one who would willingly accept persecution for the sake of Jesus. Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, is empowered to do God's work, and he is soon found to be boldly preaching in the synagogues the very message that he had come to suppress. Jesus, the risen Lord, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, is the Savior of God's people. As Paul was later to say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am the worst. And if Jesus can save Saul, he can save anyone, even the most unlikely person. So let the light of the risen Lord Jesus shine upon us, that we might be humbled by his gentle grace, respond to his call, and be healed. That we, like Paul, might live a new life that glorifies God. Amen.